Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Afterword. I'm Dave Tish, and today's podcast, we're going to talk all about some elephants. Yep, we're going to talk about some elephants that are in the room. Look, the bottom line is this. Uh, we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about missions, and missions is the idea of Christians going to places uh, where the culture does not have a church, does not have Christians, um, does not have a Bible in its native language, and someone from somewhere, they go and they live among the people and bring the gospel, bring the story of Jesus, bring the biblical translation in their native tongue to those people. This is called sometimes missionary work. And the thing is about this work, um, there are a lot of folks in our modern culture who view this with deep, deep suspicion. Look, anytime you study church history, you're going to get a mix of some really amazing stories that are incredibly inspiring and some stomach-churning abuses of the name of God and the way of Christ. So that's what church history is. In fact, that's what the Bible is. If you study it, uh, Abraham sometimes gets things incredibly right and is an inspiration for us. And other times he is just a hot mess. Same with Peter in the New Testament. There are times when Peter just gets it right. And there's other times when Peter could not have gotten it more wrong. So that's us. That's our story too. But as we study church history, I think we're supposed to learn from the abuses and the tragedies to avoid at all costs uh, and, and pray that God would help us avoid making similar mistakes that violate the heart of God and also learn from the incredible successes. But in our modern world, there's so much suspicion toward the idea of missionary work. And I think the general consensus in our modern culture is that Christianity is a force for evil. It actually does way more harm than good, and it's actually a force or it cooperates with colonization, kind of the idea of Western powers going into places and taking the resources from the native people, subjugating them, oppressing them, and stealing from them, that these two things go hand in hand. We want to talk about that today because that's actually, it's actually not factually accurate. In this podcast, I reference the work of Robert Woodbury, who uh, was a political science researcher who actually examined the effects of Protestant missionaries on developing nations and found an incredible, uh, incredible tie between the lifting of society, the dignity of people, the, the health of economies, the health of, uh, of women and children, and all sorts of other indicators, the strength of uh, democracy, the strength of participatory government as opposed to totalitarian regimes, all sorts of the, the, the presence of literacy, education, education for the poor, education for women, all sorts of indicators and factors were dramatically bolstered because of the presence of Protestant missionaries and the legacy therein. And he makes, a, a, he makes a, a, a case as a political science researcher that these can all be dramatically tied back to Protestant missionary work uh, of people who embedded themselves in the culture became, identified themselves with the native people, learned the language, cared for the people, and treated them as brothers and sisters, and built churches and, and served the local people in incredible and dramatic ways, often at the cost of their own lives. Those are the stories we're trying to stare at this week, and a pretty interesting conversation, a little controversial, and uh, again, if, uh, again, we're not trying to excuse 
the the abuses that we've seen in history. We're trying to learn from the positive examples and also learn from the negative examples of what not to do. So these are the positive stories in relief of which there are far more than our modern culture and our modern cultural moment would even like to admit or even knows of. So that's what we're trying to delve into. And I hope it's productive and I hope it's inspiring to you. And with that, let's just get into the afterword. So, where do you want to start? Dude, I always trust you on this. So All right. Where you want to? All right. Well, let, let me let me share with you an elephant in the room. Can I share with you an elephant in the room? Okay, we're getting right at it. Yeah, we are getting right at it. Okay. Let Hi, me tell. I'm, I'm Steve. That's. Oh yeah, yeah. That's, Sorry. That's let me introduce Dad. him. <laughs> I'm here with Steve <laughs> Glad Clifford. To have you with us? Uh, we are on the third week of Compassion Immersion, uh, immersion, and we have been talking about missions. Okay. So let me. Let me, let me try to frame this. And this is actually a couple of decades old, but I think that the idea that I'm about to present has only intensified in our culture. When I first became a teacher, uh, and by that I mean I came out to California and they threw me in. Here's how, what they said. They said, you don't know how to teach. Uh, go ahead and teach summer school. <laughs> and so they threw me with a master teacher into a summer school classroom. And she said, You're, figure it out. And she would give me feedback every day. But it was wow. but it was two of us in a room, or actually three of us in a room, and we had to figure out how to teach. It was it was uh, it was it was rough. And so in the middle of this, uh, I was in this classroom with this teacher, and I'm not going to say her name just because I don't want. Sure. Uh, but um, we'll call her Liz because that was her name. But I won't tell you her last name anyway. So Liz was my master teacher in her classroom. I remember looking around at it, and it uh, she had quotes on the wall and books on the wall, and. You know, English teachers have a, a, some liberty about what what they teach. You know, what short stories. There's a, a mandated curricula, but uh, at that time, in 2001 or whatever it was, it was a little more open. And the books that she had chosen and the quotes are on the wall were profoundly anti-religious. Like all of them. Like mm-hmm. really profoundly anti-religion. And as you look at them, most of them came from uh, a book written by Barbara Kingsolver called The Poisonwood Bible. And the Poisonwood Bible is a work of fiction. It's about a, a Protestant missionary who goes to the Congo, and he is horrific. And it just talks about the way that he abuses. He's racist. He's sexist. He's misogynistic. He's stupid. He, um, he's, he's stubborn. Um, he tries to baptize people in the river, the Congo River, that's brimming with crocodiles. I mean, I mean, <laughs> and if that's not a, a, a kind of an illustration for just who he is and, and how dumb he is, but in the middle of this, his his name the the main character's name is Nathan Price, and he's just an idiot. He's the worst character in the entire book, and it's kind of sets forth this idea. And it, it's in the Congo, the Congo, which was devastated. Uh, you know the history of the Congo, and if you don't, it's 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 one of the sadder histories in Africa. Uh, just a, a tale of colonialism, different European powers vying to steal and take and rape and pillage this land and its people for the for the enrichment of the European nations or in Americas, and that that kind of idea of colonialism is undergirds it. It was an Oprah book of the of Oprah book club. So it sold like 2 million copy. You know, mm. it was, it's a massive book, but the thesis it sets forth. And as you read the story, you just can't help but get angry. Right. Is that Christianity is bad for the world. And, right. the, and it's a tool of imperialism. It's a tool of colonialism. And that's what it is. And that narrative I think has become only more 
strong in our modern world, that religion's mm. bad for the world. We'd be mm -hmm. better off. In the words of John Lennon, imagine a world where there's no heaven or hell. Imagine there's no heaven. You know, imagine where there's no religion, right? That's, that's where we're going. That's, that's preferred. That's better. We're in the middle of Compassion Immersion where we're talking about the missionary work. And we just shared the story of Adoniram Judson and Anne and Sarah and Emily, his three wives, which not only counters that narrative, but I think um, begins to explain that, that, first of all, that Barbara Kingsolver's um, particular bet in this book, that did happen. And it's tragic, and it's it's inexcusable. Um, but it's the minority case, and there's lots of other stories across history of, of of missionaries who not only identified with the native people, but fought for yeah for 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 their benefit. This is what the story of Judson was. The, and and you began this this journey of kind of sharing the the missionary stories uh, a number of years ago. I, I don't even know when that's, it, it felt like 2000, it was before I got here, 2010. When did you start this? Yeah, in 2010, and it was really based, started because of my own ignorance. I didn't grow up in the church, right? so I didn't grow up with stories of missionaries, and because of that, I just didn't have any knowledge base of uh, some things, and so what? who has come before us? How did this get going? How did the how did some of the things? Because some of the best, some of the coolest people I knew were missionaries, right? And I wondered, um, how did this all get going? So I just began. You know, it, it was not. A, <laughs> there was no real strategy to it. I just started with a with a guy. Do you, you remember know? who you started with? Yeah, John Patton. Oh, you started with John Patton. Yeah, interesting. You want to tell? Two thousand and ten. Talk a little bit about who John Patton. John is. Patton is this bad rascal man. He was <laughs> he was incredibly courageous. So he he was told. Not to go to these particular islands because there was cannibalistic uh, people on there, and and then he said, um, they said, don't go there, John. They'll eat you. And because they had actually eaten the first missionaries that went tried to go to these islands, and he said, well, worms are going to eat you. So oh, what man. difference does it make if Whoa. they eat me or worms eat you? That so is hardcore. We're all going to end up, you know, dust. <laughs> and, and yeah, and so in. And you just, I read the, so I just grabbed a couple of books about him, and I read about how his dog saved his, anyway, these exciting adventures of just men and women genuinely moved by love for a people group that's not that theirs. were less resourced, uh -huh. that were not their own. Not their own culture, right? And a love for the truth of Christ and the redeeming aspect of the gospel that is not the narrative that you just explained. Exactly. In fact, right, um, right. people who courageously put aside their culture and adapted to the culture that they came into. They would often and Adam learn. And Adam Judson would yeah. have been one of those that you did learn that the very language. Thing. It takes years to learn languages, and so that's the first sign that Protestant missionaries would would be entering into another culture. Uh, is that they would learn the language, and then they would yeah. begin teaching literacy. And so, and the hardships, I, I was just inspired. The suffering. Oh my gosh, the hardships yeah. and the suffering. Who would sign up for this job? Yeah, nobody. Yeah, it's a terrible <laughs> job. It often resulted in death. Oh yeah, there's just 
books filled with martyrs of people we'll never know who right. who even died on the journey. That just to get to some of these places took a year. Yeah, you know, of really harsh, risky treatment and and things. So I just began the studies that way, um, just kind of as a my own ignorance, and I just kind of stuck with it. And uh, I don't know how many. It's you know, a little bit like a profiles of. Um what, you're, you're kind of showcasing these um, historical figures who are obviously not in the Bible, but they're in the modern, the modern mission because you're inspired by their devotion, because yeah. you're just, uh, what is it that, that you wanted to highlight that was, because these teach us something, right? Yeah. So and you wanted I, to highlight these stories to teach us. I grabbed us. people inside of the modern missionary movements. In other words, they've come along since about 1800, give or take five or 10. Uh, the modern missionary movement started just before 1800, and so I've tried to I've tried to just expose because when you hear of their faith, I mean, I, there's so many times in the scriptures that we're commanded to remember, you know, to remember this, and 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 systems that were set up so that memories would be reinforced and passed down generationally. Well, there's a rich um, heritage that the Christian faith has of some people who were really quite amazing, quite brilliant, actually. And um, we're losing them. You know, we're, the stories aren't being told. I see, yeah. And so I felt like, gosh, one weekend out of the year, uh, yeah. you know, we ought to be able to do a little something. So I've... I've were, are you old way. enough to remember... What, I remember the first story I ever heard in my life about somebody being drawn to leave the comforts of, let's say, home or safety, America, United States, whatever, and, and go serve a people who were far away in a really dangerous way was the story of Jim Elliott. Yeah. Were you, was that in your consciousness as a human uh, growing up? Because it, I mean, it happened kind of in, I, I, so if you know the story. I do. He, he's, yeah. Well, you do, of course, but the people listening, uh, he's from like the Chicago area. And um, he heard, you know, he heard the story. He was a, he was kind of a smart dude. And he and his friends heard a story about a, a tribe in Ecuador that had uh, had no exposure to the outside world which means they had no exposure to the story of Jesus. And he and his buddies said, we're going to fly there. It's super remote. And we're going to try to make contact with this tribe. And the re and it had the highest, this tribe had the highest fatality and murder rate in the world because these two tribes would just war with each other. And the mm. idea was that if you kill a rival tribesman, you gain their strength, right? right? And so you could live forever kind of feel. And so it was in the most violent society in the world, they think, at the time. Anthropolo anthropologists wouldn't even study it because it was so dangerous. He and his buddies fly down there, land, make contact, and then they lose contact with them. And the reason why is because these Indians, um, I think they were, the Native American tribe was called the, what was the name of it? Uh. Alka? Hey everybody, just wanted to break in. Uh, I just wanted to correct the factual record here. The actual name of the tribe that Jim Elliott and his companions made contact with in Ecuador in 1952, um, the, the, the five men were uh, Jim Elliott, Ed McCulley, Roger Rotterin, Pete Fleming, and the pilot Nate Saint. They all landed in a, a Piper PA-14 airplane in Ecuador to make contact with the Alca, or sometimes called the Wadoni tribe. Uh, that was in Ecuador. At the time, the murder rate, the homicide rate of the Alka people, the Wadoni tribe, was some of the highest in the world. Six out of every 10 deaths were homicides. 
And then um, after the men were killed, the, all five of these men were speared to death when the warriors emerged from the village and, um, and speared the men to death. Uh, this created a, a tremendous amount of international sensation. And uh, some of the widows of the, the, the men who were killed, Elizabeth Elliot, uh, chief among them, but also Nate Saint's wife, uh, went to make contact, learned the language, and began um, kind of sharing the news of Jesus and loving uh, and living among the the people, the Alka people in the Wadoni tribe. Elizabeth Elliot wrote about this in one of her books called uh, Through the Gates of Splendor, uh, which describes the life and death of her husband and her work there, and also memorialized in the 2002 documentary called uh, Beyond the Gates of Splendor, uh, so you can read about that or learn more about that now. But what's what's it is fascinating that uh, within a generation, the murder rate and homicide rate of the Alka people plummeted more than ninety percent, and the only anthropological insertion to this culture was a group of Christians. So pretty fascinating. Anyway, just wanted to set the record straight. Anyway, Jim and his 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 team companion they were, were killed. killed. They were killed. Yeah, they were martyred. And it inspired uh, legions of people. And, and the famous line was, he, he is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot lose. Yeah. And uh, it was a sign of devotion. It was a sign of um, a heart for people groups. Uh, so that's just one example of, of kind and, of the, the mission movement. And this year, I, um, Jim's wife, Elizabeth Elliot, which actually made that whole story famous and ended up being... Yeah, she wrote the story, she right? She wrote yeah. the story, and it became famous, and it spurred on a new movement um, in the 60s and 70s of many, many missionaries. But the courage, something but in the you, courage the courage and it, the it, devotion, maybe? Yeah, I just... The open-handedness, really yeah. It, so, yeah. yeah. I, I'm reminded of stories of the modern missionary movement. And the reason why the modern missionary movement kind of happened at the end of this is industrialization, and we suddenly could go to places via steamboats and ships, and yeah. we could hear news about and get pictures back. So this was the beginnings of this. And that stirred the hearts of Christians who, um, they were not motivated by the imperialistic colonial. Um, this is not about empire. It's not you, about financial gain. And you you said this too. It's not about empire. It's about the kingdom, kingdom. of God. Yes. And that's a critical distinction because all the writings bear testimony to this. It, the idea that God wants his, him, God wants to be known to all people groups and that everybody's better with Jesus. Yeah. I mean, that's just the bottom line. And that God loves all people groups, that there are not some. So there's this kind of people think, oh, you're, you're being condescending. Uh, you think you have all the answers and you're bringing it to the savages. It, look, that's, the, that's not the language that's used. The, yeah. um, the missionaries would go embed themselves and, and in many ways feel as though they were a part of that native tribe. For example, um, I think about, nobody's ever written a story about this, but there's a, a missionary in the 1900s out of this movement called John McKenzie who went to South Africa. And during that time, some of the European nations, uh, the South Africaners from, from, from the Netherlands came and tried to steal the Africans' land. And they actually fought for reform and protection from Britain to allow the native Africans to retain their land. Yeah. It, like nobody talks, because they identified with their African brothers and sisters. Like, you can't come and steal this land. So there's all those types of stories about the advocacy um, yeah. in, in this. Uh, the narrative that we have in our culture today that where Christianity goes, just it's ill 
It's bad. Game. It's, it's bad, bad for yeah. everyone who who gets you know. It doesn't that the stand world up be to better. scrutiny. It just it's simply not historically accurate. Right. I mean, and there were certainly bad things that happened. Don't yeah, get me yeah, wrong. Yeah, we're not I, we're not excusing not the bad. Excusing. We're not excusing that. No. But we're talking generally in terms. Actually, can I share something with you? Sure. Too? Uh, there was a there was a guy. Um, his name was Robert Woodbury, and he was a political scientist. And one of the things that was interesting is he went over to Africa. And he went to the nation of Togo and he said, hey, hey, where's your where's your university? I want to do some study and some some research on your university. And they they said, well, we don't we don't really have books here. We have our professors. They read us passages, but we don't really have books. And he went to the like the the main capitals library. And there was like 15. There's like less books than in his personal library. So then what he does is he goes next door to Ghana. Right. And um, Ghana at the University of Ghana, is like floor-to-ceiling books. So why the stark contrast? Mm. And he says, the reason is, they map it back, they said the reason is clear. During the colonial era, British missionaries, Christian missionaries in Ghana, established a whole system of schools and printing presses and libraries because they wanted literacy, because they wanted to share the word of God. And this made the entire society literate. Wow. And so he started wondering, I wonder if there's positive if you could somehow track where the missionaries went in colonial powers and where missionaries did not go, if there's any disparity between what what we find now politically a couple of hundred years later. And he said it was like an atomic bomb. His research took him years to get. He's a political scientist. He happens to be a Christian, but he's a political scientist first. And he was afraid he had some sort of confirmation bias. So, And you can read his articles, and it won... Uh, a, polit- a number of political science award for for best book and best project. Um, but the evidence kept coming on. And what you found is in these nations where there were Protestant missionaries, again, not Catholic missionaries and not state-sponsored missionaries, but Protestant missionaries, you saw incredible levels of, of literacy, of uh, a lower child mortality, mm. uh, health care for all, including women and children, schools, you saw um, more participation in the government, less totalitarianism, more uh, willingness to work together, uh, better economic sharing, more servant leadership, all sorts of things. And it's all, he traces it. He's like, hey, look, here's the study. It leads to this rise in the betterment of, of, of the people. Now, that doesn't mean, that doesn't make things true. It's just utterly fascinating to me that the political science bears out that these Protestant missionaries were not about subjugating or stealing or taking, but serving the local people yeah, and I, bringing the story of Christ and the way of Christ to these people. And again, we're not we're not saying that everyone who showed up in the name of Jesus, of course not, was was of actually there for Jesus' sake. Of course, um, we, we're not trying to do that. But it, I, I just think that uh, anyway. So that's how the, the that's how the whole journey we find ourselves now, thirteen years later. Um, all of these different folks that we've gone through, and um, some of them have become personal heroes. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. Now let's let's switch a little bit to uh, Westgate because we we invited people to participate. We it's not just looking back in the history; we're looking forward to now to to missionaries that we send out now. Yeah, and people who we know are doing incredible work doing this exact. It's continuing on the tradition, so it's 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 our family legacy. And we're look look. We can look at the bad examples and say never, but we can look at the good examples and say always. You mm-hmm, know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, and that's what Christian history. If you ever study Christian history, it's 
wildly disappointing and incredibly inspiring at the same time, isn't it? <laughs> it it's, sure is. It's a, it's a wonder God gets anything done with any of us, right? right. It, oh, re- yeah. So we're not saying that, but we are saying that the good examples we can learn from and try to move into the, the servant leader. And so we have quite a few, and we invited people to, to the Loud Fund. Do you want to talk about why the Loud Fund exists and why it's important to you? And just kind of talking about why, why it's important for, or why it's important for people to consider participating in that. Well, um, so a little bit of a history behind uh, what was going on. When I came to Westgate, the, the amount of dollars that were going outside of our walls was quite small. And I, I knew that we could take a percentage of the general budget and begin to give that, um, which we have and, and have done, and we still do. But I knew that that wouldn't grow it fast enough. I also knew among God's people that were, there were some of us, not, not all, not even most, but some of us who cared so deeply about our world that we wanted to allocate some of our resources to, to just that, that would go 100% outside of our walls. And so we didn't call it the Loud Fund initially, um, but we knew that we needed a, sep- a separate fund to be able to do that. It allowed us in the first few years to double and double and triple and triple. I mean, it, we, the, the amount of money that was being given away just exponentially was just it just multiplying um, as we worked our way through those first years. And the idea of this fund is it's designated, which it's, means it can't be used for the church, be legally. for us. We cannot spend it on ourselves. It's, it's a designated it's a fund designated for fund outside that the walls. It must go outside Got our it. walls. Got it. And so, the, you know, that it's we basically legislate to our weakness. So if, if, if at some point we were scared that we didn't have enough— we can't touch the loud money. And um, I believe that if you're a Christian of resource, which I consider myself one, sure, uh, and I accurately see the world, that I look at all of the wealth that is spent on us, and I think I'd like to do more for the world. So that, that's, that's the motive and the reasons behind um, the loud fund that, that it was. Of course, we're going to. Well, we're going to give ten percent of our general budget away. Um, but we want it. Our goal has always been to try to get a number that actually represented maybe as much as fifty percent of our general budget. Well, you can't get there with just the one, but with the one offer, you can't take that out of general budget in a way that still allows you to operate as a church. The cost of expenses for staff alone are just too high. So we knew we needed an extra account. An extra budget. And yeah. A, yeah, an and extra it's fund. Just, it's, we're generous, and I, I would say I would call us a generous church, but we're generous because people have allowed us to be generous. We, we, right. we only give away what people give. So Over your time, you, you led this. Have you heard stories or people have talked to you to say how giving to this fund has somehow helped them grow spiritually? Well, yes, um, especially when they they have the opportunity to hear of, from some of the missionaries as they come back and share what's going on. I mean, um, we have a tendency in America uh, to think that that's the way that Christianity is actually being lived out everywhere in the world, where the truth is, is actually all of the excitement of Christian growth has left the North American continent, and it has move to South America and to Africa and to Asia. Um, and there are just some tremendous things, un, um, unprecedented growth of the Christian faith around the world. Um, 
And so when you begin to hear that and how my money is my my, my money is going directly to some of those kinds of efforts, I'm I'm honored. I'm honored that I get. To I be think a, part a little of it. bit about the term return on investment. It's a big term here. The idea that if I can sure. put a little bit of money into this startup and it can return ten times the money, fifty times the money, a hundred yeah. times the money. Yeah. I think about those verses in the Bible where God says, "When you give to the poor, you like lend money to me," mm. which is it, it, it's an interesting way. Imagine you give a little bit of money. Or, or even a lot of money, and it's returns 10, 50, 100-fold spiritually. Yeah. It, it, imagine your your return. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I think that, that that in a silly way, I sometimes think, what an incredible, what an incredible investment. Now, you're not going to see it now. You're going to see it. You're not going to see the, the effects of it, maybe. Uh, but just the, the imagine, I allow my imagination, God, I'm going to give this money to you, trusting you're going to double it or triple it or quadruple it hmm. or tenfold or a hundredfold it. Who knows what impact this is going to have in the world as you use this? Yeah. It's kind of fun that that motivates you. It's it, just my own perspective is I never think of ROI. I never, I never do that. I, I, because the ROI with God is always great. So wherever I give my money to God's cause, <laughs> sure, it's always going to sure. be good. I just think of I just think of the of the tragedy and the judgment honestly the judgment on us as a church that there would be if we have the resources to be able to help the gospel change lives and it, truthfully it doesn't hurt us to share I mean you know we're we're not given to the point of pain of pain giving to the point of pain we're not right, missing yeah. meals here yeah um, Westgate as a church is trying to give away a lot of money, uh, and we, we've made, made we've decided that how we're going to measure success is a lot about how much money we give away outside of our walls. But we're not hurt. I mean, other than we don't, we just don't have padded chairs. We're not going to spend money on padded chairs, but we have everything we need. I mean, and and to spare, you know. Yeah. Um, God has been so gracious. To, I, I just think that it's kind of a challenge. To, Let's see what we can do. If let's try to outgive God, yeah, you know, and, we, and you never can. You never yeah. can. I, I the other thing that's really interesting about these stories is, it, look, nobody's uh, these missionaries that go overseas. Nobody sets off to be some sort of social reformer. They don't set off to like upend political structures. There's no way that Adoniram thought he would be some sort of broker between you know the European powers and the people of Burma for political truce. Right. No one sets out that way. But what happens, and you see this time and again, is this shifting identity of brotherhood. This idea that these are my people, yeah. and I am one yeah. of them, and they are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Again, not empire, which kingdom. conquers and, and, and subjugates. Yeah. Kingdom. kingdom. This is brotherhood and sisterhood. Yes. And you see that in Adoniram's, when he's in jail, his wife makes deep relationships with those in power, in in Burma, in, in in what was called Burma, now is Myanmar. Um, that relationship that she has with the the women in the court, um, the way she talks to them, the way she teaches them, mm-hmm. uh, the way she pleads for her husband, and then eventually he's the only one that the Burmese government trusts out of the entire world to, and one of the few people in the world that can even speak English and and, and Burmese. Burmese. Yeah, it, it's it's, and so it's like it never sets out to be this, but when brotherhood happens, of course you share. 
Mm-hmm. Of course you give. Yeah. And then their stories influenced others to say, wow, these are our brothers and sisters, even though they're across the world, we're all s- somehow amazingly, astonishingly part of the same family. Yeah, if, if you think about the Adoniram and, and, and Anne and Sarah and Emily, uh, their inspiration to me is 200 years later, they're their efforts continue to yeah. bear fruit. Yeah, how many, How many? now you had this number, how many uh, Christians are in Myanmar right now? Yeah, over two million. Two million. And they're all, and it's the greatest, concent, it's the third greatest concentration of Baptists in the world. Adoniram was a Baptist. And so... Um, that's that's interesting. All of those conversions and... <laughs> I would not have guessed that. all 8,000 churches that are in Myanmar now are Myanmar. Uh, they... They are. They trace um, their lineage. They trace their lineage back straight to Adoniram well, and his wives. I, well, I love the part in the story where you kind of share when he was trying to consider where to go. He goes to William Carey, who's in India, yeah. and William Carey's like, "Look, I don't care where you go, but do not go, don't to, go Burma. to Burma. Don't go to Burma. It's a nightmare. There's political instability. The temperature and the humidity and the disease will kill you immediately. So don't yeah. do it." And what's he do? He goes. The yeah. other thing I thought was really interesting is he comes in like 1812, right? Yeah. And you say there's like not, there's hardly any fruit until oh, 1831. 1831. Very little fruit. Okay, so I'm going to do the math real quick. That's 19 19, years. okay, I'm going to do the math right. That's 19, <laughs> 19 years. 19 years. Like, I would have stopped after uh, 1813. I would have been like, whoop. I gave it a year. Yeah, I gave it a whole year of my life, my best efforts. I didn't see any growth. God must not be in it. I'll see you guys later. He doesn't see hardly anything for like 19 years. Yeah, 19 years. They they plant one church. They have some converts. Insane. Um, That's insane. What perseverance. And then, and then in 1831, uh, revival breaks Some out. sort of uh, explosion. Yeah. It's like you water, 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 plant, soil, and then all of a sudden, boom, bloom. It's crazy. Yeah. It's insane. Uh, so that that was inspiring to me because I have, I have so little patience. I'm like, man, it's been three months. Why isn't, why isn't this program, why isn't this ministry growing? It's like three months, David. Come on. Yeah, and, and to me, um, you know, because of the transition and Jay taking over and people are asking me, how's the transition going and how do you think it's all going to be? Um, and I and I've told my initial response was, well, I'll tell you in ten years. <laughs> you know, I, I want to see, I want to see Westgate as this beyond anything I could ever imagine. Great, um, Jesus-centered, Bible-preaching, generous group of people who are still impacting the world in ten years. But in reality, if I t- what Adoniram changes me and his wives is, let's see how it is in two hundred. Wow. You know the challenge. The challenge in eighteen twenty. Um, remains the same today. The same to 2020. Yeah. And so let's let's imagine what it would be if Jesus tarries. Um, you mean if he doesn't return? Yeah. Well, right, because we don't know when. If he if he doesn't return, then right. Uh, what could Westgate be like in 200 years I, if they just continue? I have no idea. <laughs> that staggers my mind. But you're saying it's the long obedience in the same direction. To I'll quote, tell you what it's yeah. going to most if it follows the trend. Of most churches, it'll be gone. Sure. It'll be dead and gone. But it but doesn't have to be. But it doesn't God, have no, to be. God could do a thing. What if God yeah. chooses to do something? Imagine what it could be yeah. like. 
And a lot of churches do succumb to selfishness and they don't, they're not kingdom minded. They can, they can, we, we, all of us, not just churches, I'm sorry. Every Christian, every person tends towards selfishness, away from allegiance to God, away from radical obedience. That's why these stories are so helpful because they shake us, they shake us out of complacency. They do. You, you, you you start to think that this is the way it'll always be because it's the way it's always been. But in reality, it's not the way it's always been. There have been people who have radically chosen to die to their own agendas mm-hmm. and to submit to the will of Christ, and He's chosen to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all they could imagine. Yeah, I think that's what He wants to do. I think about even some of today. The, I think about some of the early missionaries that were in um, that revival when they would ship out to wherever. They would always write two letters. Uh, the first letter was to their congregation, and the second was to their families, and they were to be read upon their death. Right, and then they would take all their possessions. And they would be shipped over in a coffin, (laughs) because that's how you're going to return. Yeah, that to me is staggering. It's it it just speaks to, and the reason why they went. And you talk about this at the end of uh, of your message in Hebrews. The reason why they went is because their eyes were fixed on Jesus and His mission. Yeah, what does Jesus want? If these are all souls, all people, all humans made in God's image who he wants to come mm-hmm. into a glowing relationship with him. Yeah. And if there is no one to share that, then I will leave my place just like Jesus left heaven and I will go and I will self-sacrifice and give my life that they might receive life from the one who gives life. Yeah. That's their motivation. It's in all of their writings. That's why it's inspiring. And it reminds me that the same call that Jesus made to them in the 1800s is the exact, exact same, call same call to me and you right yep. now. Right now, all of us. Yeah, and I think about how wimpy I am, right? I came to I Cali- don't think about that, Steve. I, I, I think about how great I, I am. I came to California <laughs> with a two-year plan. I'll try it out a couple of years, and I'll go back home to Texas and do my thing. I mean, you know, it was, I, I was always— I'll give God two years. I was years. never willing to burn the ships and, and right, just right. say, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I'm here to stay. And— um, and I'm motivated by guys that will be. It's incredible. So. Now, you ended with uh, a poem that is really personal to you. Uh, you. I don't know where you encountered it, uh, but I thought we would end the podcast with you reading part of this because it really inspired you uh, in, a, in a way that's pretty deep. And so I was wondering if you could share a little bit about why and then share some of the poem. Well, I think it's because of the transition and the uncertainty of how my life will look in the coming years. And uh, knowing that I've come to the... The th- what Dane and I call the third adventure. You know, we had an adventure as, as public school teachers and coaches, and then I've had an adventure as a pastor. And now, although I'm still a pastor and in some ways I always have been a coach, um, what's it look like now? And so, kind of the next season yeah, of your life. And, and, and the temptation is to think it is leisure. Oh, you're retired now. That's what dominates my life now. Is and just leisure. have some fun, kick back, and, and relax. This, and I'm, and I, I'm not interested. I mean, in my worst moments, I, I confess that I may contemplate leisure. Uh, but mostly, what I want is is something actually much different than that. And I, I just, I, I want to act. I, I want to be still in the fray. I want to, I want to still be sometimes desperate and sometimes just dependent on Christ and see what He does. And that doesn't happen in leisure. Um, that doesn't happen when I take all my time and instead of submitting it to him, I, I turn it towards my golf game or, you know, living in Florida or whatever it is. Nothing against Florida. Please, so don't, please don't write don't in. Write if you're in. from Florida, please don't write in. So I came across this poem, and um, 
it's it's a bit long. I won't I I won't read all of it, but I I just I will just read a few a few things of it. It says, "Tell me not." It's a, it's called the Psalm of Life. By whom? By Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Tell me not in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream, for the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not the goal. Dust thou art, and dust returneth, was not spoken of the soul. And I just think, you know, yes, to dust we'll return, but not our soul. Our soul will live forever. And so it, it just it challenged me and encouraged me. There's and, a verse in there, it, he talks about acting. Yeah, so let me go. At the end, it, it, it talks that, Trust no future, however pleasant. Let the dead past bury its dead. Act. Act in the living present. Heart within and God o'erhead. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime. And departing, leave behind us footprints in the sands of time. Wow. Footprints that perhaps another sailing o'er life's solemn main, a forlorn or shipwrecked brother, seeing shall take heart again. Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing. Learn to labor, learn to wait. So great. Yeah. And you know, as you read that, I thought Adoniram, we're still studying his life. He's still inspiring us right now. So his sacrifices are still impacting the church uh, 200 years later. We're still we're still being formed by the very same things that. So that's exactly what he did. His footprints are and and Anne and Sarah yeah, and Emily. Say, it's and, not just Adoniram. Adoniram, we know of Adoniram only because of Anne and, and he's Sarah dead. And Emily. If it's not for Anne, he's dead for sure. He, he's not only dead; he's dead and forgotten. <laughs> yeah. So big deal. Yeah. So. Well, Steve, thanks for this time. Thanks yeah, for thank uh, really inspiring. And again, uh, if you are uh, joining us, uh, we're, we're so glad. Um, please participate or pray about participating in the Loud Fund. It's a great way to support incredible work, not just here, but across the globe. Um, and thank you for all you who do participate. It allows yes, us to be you. incredibly generous and to support incredible work. And we're just grateful, grateful for that. And so we'll start back next week. Next week, we, we run right back into Matthew. I'm very excited to yeah. to be back in Matthew. I'm on next week too. You are now. You know, so we'll see you and uh, I think it's you and Karina next week. So we'll yeah. see you guys then, and we'll start Matthew season five. So uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks. Bye bye. Just want to say thanks to Steve Clifford for stopping by. That's the end of Compassion Immersion, folks. Thanks for joining us for the last three weeks. Again, we invite you to check out the calendar, the Compassion Immersion 2023 calendar, which has got stories about our missionaries that we support and the incredible work they're doing around the globe and right here in the U.S. And we also encourage you to pray about how you might support financially the Loud Fund. Again, 100% of that money goes outside of our walls. And again, this goes to places like South America, Africa, and Asia, where the dollar goes really far and can make a tremendous impact. So we encourage you to pray about that. Thanks for joining us. Join us next week where we'll be back in the book of Matthew, season five, we're calling it. We're going to be studying the miracles of Jesus and what they reveal about Jesus, the Messiah, and the King. So join us for that. Can't wait for that. We'll see you soon.